Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, August 1st, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. African leaders tell Nigeria's junta to cede power. A political rally bombing in Pakistan kills at least 45. Saudi Arabia will host a Ukraine peace summit without Russia. The DOJ is accused of intimidating a key witness in the Hunter Biden probe. A Georgia judge rejects Trump's bid to block a grand jury report. An Australia Army helicopter crash leaves no hope for survivors. Rival Palestinian governments form a reconciliation committee. A judge blocks an Arkansas law allowing librarians to be charged for harmful materials. X threatens legal action against a hate speech nonprofit. And scientists induce a virgin birth in fruit flies. In our top story, African leaders give Niger's junta one week to cede power. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Wall Street Journal, BBC News, NBC, France 24, and Associated Press. West African countries have issued an ultimatum to Niger's new military leaders reportedly threatening to take all measures, including force, to restore constitutional order if toppled President Mohamed Bazoum is not reinstated within a week. The ultimatum comes as leaders from the Economic Community of the West African States, or ECOWAS, held emergency talks Sunday in Nigeria's capital, Abuja, to discuss the country's third coup, which followed army takeovers in Mali and Burkina Faso. This is the first time that ECOWAS had allegedly threatened military action to reverse the unconstitutional seizure of political power in the region since 2017 when troops were deployed to the Gambia to force a long-entrenched ruler to accept defeat in elections. Meanwhile, thousands of pro-Junta demonstrators took to the streets on Sunday in Niger, filling the main thoroughfares in Naimi. Many protesters waving Russian flags attacked the French embassy, smashed windows, and set a perimeter door on fire though they couldn't breach the compound's walls. Earlier, Niger's military junta claimed that the ECOWAS was planning to carry out an aggression against the country, quote, in the form of an imminent military intervention in Naimi, in cooperation with non-ECOWAS countries and the West. Niger's junta has been under mounting international pressure since ousting Bazoum on Wednesday, with the U.S. threatening economic sanctions and the EU announcing an immediate moratorium on financial and security assistance. On this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Those were the facts. Let's start our narrative spins with Narrative A from the New York Times. The 15-nation ECOWAS echoed earlier calls by major allies of Niger, stressing its readiness to take swift action to restore democratic rule in a country that's vital to ensure regional security. Yet, the bloc will have to find the right balance to navigate its way out of the crisis without punishing citizens and pushing the junta into the hands of Russia or Wagner forces. Narrative B is from Foreign Policy Research Institute. ECOWAS is once again taking the risk of being seen as an illegitimate regional body as it fails to realize sanctions cause more suffering among ordinary citizens while not dissuading the coup leaders. Following its failures in addressing recent military takeovers in Burkina Faso and Mali, the bloc should have changed its policies and implemented measures for preventing coups in the first place. Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org slash pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now, back to the news. Mayhem and tragedy in Pakistan as a political rally bombing kills at least 45 people. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Dawn, The Independent, NDTV, Al Jazeera, Reuters, and The Guardian. 
following a suicide bombing at a political rally in the Bajwar district of Pakistan on Sunday, state-run rescue agency Bilal Faizi has confirmed that at least 45 people have died, with over 130 injured and 61 currently undergoing treatment. At this time, no terrorist group has claimed responsibility for the actions of the individual who detonated an explosives vest near the stage of several senior members of the Jamaat Ulima e Islam Fazi, or Joey F. Party, a Pakistani government coalition partner. Provincial police claim that initial investigations have suggested that the Islamic State group may be behind the attack. The group has been active in neighboring Afghanistan in opposition to the Taliban administration and has been known to take refuge in the Peshawar area. IS has previously carried out attacks against Joey F. in the region and has previously accused the party of hypocritically having Islamic ideology while supporting hostile groups as well as the military. Party officials have stated that Joey F.'s pro-Taliban party leader and cleric, Maulana Fazlur Rahman, was not present at the rally. Senior party member Abdul Rashid claimed that the attack was an attempt to undermine Joey F. before parliamentary elections this November. According to a witness, over 500 people were at the event listening to a sermon when the blast occurred. In response to the event, Pakistani Prime Minister Shabazz Sharif has claimed that those involved will be truly punished and committed to bringing an end to terrorism in the state. Those were the facts. Our first spin is Narrative A coming from Daily Times. The bombing in Bajur is yet another example of terrorism engulfing the war-ravaged region. Intelligence-sharing agreements must be signed with Afghanistan, and a comprehensive counterterrorism strategy must be drawn up as an immediate priority. Now is a crucial time for Pakistan to respond. Islamabad cannot continue to sit back and let terrorists increasingly gain influence and strength. And the nation brings us Narrative B. Although more must be done to stem the continuing wave of terrorism in Pakistan, current attempts by the government to impose new legislation come at the expense of democratic principles. Meaningful dialogue and measures are necessary, but current broad and vaguely worded provisions to target terrorists raise the potential for the government to abuse its power, violate individual freedoms, and restrict media access. Pakistan must find a balance between security and civil liberties. Metaculous Prediction Community gives us a nerd narrative. They say there's an 82% chance that Pakistan will recognize the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan before the year 2030. Brian Williams is a buddy of mine. He was actually at that event when that blast went off. <laughs> you know, He's, I kind of said, feel for for Brian, if Brian Williams says anything, I wouldn't. I, I would have trouble taking it seriously. What if he was really at the event? You know, what if he's a, a Jewy right. uh, sympathizer? Which you right. know, it's it's uh, yeah. I'll tell you what they you know they it takes a, a lifetime to build your word and and a, and a second to ruin it. So yeah, yeah, but, keep your yeah. word. <laughs> Saudi Arabia to host a Ukraine peace summit excluding Russia. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Politico, Middle East Eye, Associated Press, and the official website of President Zelensky. Saudi Arabia will next month host a Ukrainian-organized summit aimed at bringing Ukraine's war with Russia to a close, multiple reports confirmed over the weekend. According to the Wall Street Journal, which first reported the plans, talks will be held in the city of Jeddah on August 5th and 6th and will involve senior diplomats from up to 30 nations, including the U.S., U.K., Poland, Egypt, Mexico, and Zambia. Officials with knowledge of the plans have said Russia will not be involved. Details of the talks were also reported by the Associated Press before Andriy Yermak, the head of Ukraine's presidential office, 
confirmed the plans in a speech on Sunday. However, he did not specify the exact time or location of the summit. Speaking in the Ukrainian city of Ivano-Frankivsk, Yermak said, quote, The Ukrainian peace formula contains 10 fundamental points, the implementation of which will not only ensure peace for Ukraine, but also create mechanisms to counter future conflicts in the world. He continued saying, We are deeply convinced that the Ukrainian peace plan should be taken as a basis, because the war is taking place on our land. Adding that in the process of consultations, Ukraine's presidential office aims to consider all opinions and positions that do not contradict the key principles of international law and the provisions of the UN Charter. Ukraine maintains that Russia cannot engage in peace talks until it withdraws all troops from the nation and is prosecuted for war crimes at an international court. Meanwhile, Russia has stated that it is open to negotiations, but that they will assess the realities of today, i.e. Moscow's 2014 annexation of Crimea and other territorial gains made in the course of the war. The pro-Ukraine narrative on this story comes from the LA Times. Ukraine has never refused to negotiate with Russia, but before dialogue can begin, Moscow must first return all of Ukraine's occupied lands, pay compensation for the damage caused by the war, and be prosecuted for the war crimes it has committed. Only then can it meaningfully engage in the peace process. The pro-Russian narrative comes from TASS. Russia has consistently been open to negotiations with Ukraine. In fact, a draft agreement was previously reached, but after Russia withdrew from Kyiv to facilitate the deal, Kyiv abandoned the process and outlawed the possibility of future talks with Russia. If Ukraine wants peaceful negotiations, the ball is in its court. And we have another nerd narrative from Metaculus. This time they predict there's a 10% chance there will be a bilateral ceasefire or peace agreement in the Russo-Ukraine conflict before 2024. If this was a divorce, this would be under the uh, category of irreconcilable differences right now, I would say. I'm feeling a little bit better about the situation. I don't know about you. I'm, I'm seeing a little glimmer of hope. I mean, the fact that anyone's even talking about having peace talks is a huge yeah. step. I mean, the fact that one of the sides isn't even invited. I mean, we could probably do a little better there over time. Here in the United States, I think we've gotten numb to this conflict. It's just kind of one of those things that's going on in the background. This is a big deal day to day. I mean, it's it would be hard to just say, even if it meant peace, like, all right, all the stuff you did to us, and this is either side saying this to the other, oh, we're good. Let's just call it even. Right. Like, that's not, that's not easy. The GOP accuses the DOJ of intimidating a witness in the Hunter Biden probe. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Red State, Politico, Fox News, and Newsweek. House Republicans who are investigating President Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, this weekend accused the U.S. Department of Justice of obstructing their probe by intimidating a key witness in the case. These accusations came after federal prosecutors in New York on Saturday wrote to Judge Ronnie Abrams asking her to schedule a date for the imprisonment of Devin Archer, a longtime business partner of Hunter who was set to testify at a House Oversight Committee session Monday. In 2018, Archer was convicted of two felonies for his role in defrauding a Native American tribe. His sentence was postponed under appeal, but last week, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals upheld his one-year sentence. Republican Congressman from Kentucky James Comer, chairman of the Oversight Committee, called the prosecutor's letter odd and very troubling, and alleged it was part of a wider DOJ attempt to intimidate Archer and stifle the Hunter Biden investigation. Archer's lawyers confirmed his presence Monday as planned to answer Congress's questions. Meanwhile, New York prosecutors made another filing to Abrams on Sunday, saying the government did not request the defendant surrender prior to his congressional testimony. Scott, thanks for the facts of that story. The first spit is a Republican narrative coming from New York Post. 
It's no coincidence this request came from the DOJ before Archer's imminent testimony. President Biden has politicized the DOJ as evidenced by the charges against former President Trump, as well as the dropping charges against Biden donor Sam Bankman-Fried. The DOJ probably can't sink any lower. And Politico counters with this Democratic narrative. Republicans are floating conspiracy theories again. No one believes the DOJ's request and Archer's looming testimony are linked. Not even Archer. Even if granted, the request wouldn't have prevented Archer from testifying. And Republicans know that but as always, strive to cast the president in a negative light. Eric, I'm not passing any judgment on this whatsoever. I'm just going to state a fact. The YouTube videos we've recently started, news videos, you can check them out at the Improve the News YouTube channel. All of them have over 100,000 views, except for two that happen to have the word Biden in the title that are both in the hundreds, like not hundreds of thousands, hundreds. I don't know what you. Wow. I, I don't know what you want to draw from that. Are they not popular? I don't even want to comment because I don't want to sound biased. But I'm just saying it, we have 20 or so videos. They're all in the hundreds of thousands, and the only two that are literally in the hundreds, three digits, are the two that have Biden in the title. Everybody knows you get lost in a Biden story. Can't find the next door or which path to go down. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Start walking down the wrong staircase. Start saying God save the queen for no reason. Who knows? In our next story, a Georgia judge declines to throw out a special investigation of Trump. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, ABC News, Politico, CNBC, Associated Press, and Reuters. A Georgia judge rejected former President Trump's request to halt Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis's investigation into his conduct in the aftermath of the 2020 presidential election and whether or not he and his allies interfered with Georgia's election. Trump's team first filed a motion in March, asking Willis, a Democrat, to be disqualified in the court to remove the finding from the special grand jury. However, Judge Robert McBurney wrote that there was insufficient argument to interfere with a high-profile criminal investigation. McBurney acknowledged the unwelcome and unpleasant experience Trump is going through, but also noted that the ongoing investigations could be turned into golden political capital. Earlier this month, the state Supreme Court rejected Trump's bid to shut down the investigation. Trump has one more impending hearing on August 10th for a separate motion to stop Willis's investigation. But McBurney wrote that his ruling should make that hearing unnecessary. He also wrote that Trump is likely to appeal his decision. Willis has been investigating Trump and his close confidants for two and a half years for allegedly trying to subvert the state's election with a plan to stop its certification. Willis has stated that an indictment should come by August 18th from one of the special grand juries. The former president claims his long list of legal battles are politically motivated efforts to derail his 2024 presidential campaign. Trump is currently the favorite to be the Republican nominee. We've got some political narratives on this story. Democratic narrative from Politicus USA. Trump knows his days are numbered. And McBurney's decision to reject his Hail Mary attempt to disqualify Fannie Willis and toss out the special grand jury report is one of the final nails in his coffin. Trump is a wannabe tyrant, tried to overthrow American democracy. He tried extra hard to change Georgia's election, and now the state will get its revenge by indicting him. Conservative Brief provides the pro-Trump narrative for this story. While Trump's motion to stop the Georgia investigation was definitely a long shot, it doesn't change the fact that the former president is being politically targeted like no other politician in American history. Fannie Willis is a hyper-partisan Democrat doing the bidding of the establishment. But the American people know that they're just attacking Trump to get him out of the way. That is why so many continue to stand behind Trump. And once again, a nerd narrative from Metaculus. This time, they predict 
there is a 32% chance that Donald Trump will be jailed or incarcerated before the year 2030. The Australian Defense Ministry reports no survivors in a helicopter crash. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Reuters, Associated Press, The Guardian, and ABC News. A search and rescue effort to find four Australian crew members in an army helicopter that crashed last Friday has become a recovery operation, with Australian Defence Minister Richard Marles telling reporters Monday that there's no chance of survivors. An Australian Defence Force MRH-90 Taipan helicopter crashed into the ocean off the coast of Queensland during the biennial joint U.S.-Australia Talisman Sabre military exercises. Army Chief Lieutenant General Simon Stewart said four members of the 6th Aviation Regiment were on board. While initial investigations attempted to rescue the four men, revealed to be Captain Daniel Lyon, Lieutenant Maxwell Nugent, Warrant Officer Joseph Laycock, and Corporal Alexander Nags, authorities have lost hope and are investigating the cause of the tragedy. In the wake of the catastrophic crash on Friday, Lieutenant General Stewart said the Army's 45 MRH-90 Taipans will be grounded until they are proven safe to fly. The aging planes had been recalled before and are set to be replaced by U.S.-made Blackhawks. Marles didn't comment on acquiring Blackhawks sooner, but did note that grounding the MRH-90s will impact Australia's capabilities. Though there were no casualties in another MRH-90 incident in March, flights were paused for a month while the government took steps to mitigate risks. Despite the incident, the Talisman Sabre exercise, which involves 13 nations and more than 30,000 military personnel, continued Monday. Defense Force Chief General Angus Campbell thanked the U.S. and Canada for helping in the search efforts and said the helicopter's wreckage is too deep for standard diving operations. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. Our first spin is Narrative A, coming from the Australian Financial Review. The MRH-90 Taipan helicopter had a number of fatal flaws, which were abundantly clear. Yet, Australia's army continued to fly this dangerous vehicle while waiting for its new Black Hawk helicopters. Unfortunately, this mistake led to the deaths of four men in a completely avoidable tragedy. Just months earlier, a Taipan also had an accident, thanks to its structural issues, yet it resumed flying a month later. These helicopters were never safe, and this accident was tragically avoidable. Narrative B from the Asia-Pacific Defense Reporter There's been a lot of talk about the MRH-90 Taipan helicopter, with critics claiming the aircraft itself is fundamentally flawed. However, Australia's bigger problem is with how the Taipan is used operationally, rather than its manufacturing. Other countries using the MRH, like neighboring New Zealand, have far fewer issues. The MRH-90 is not a perfect helicopter, but blaming its manufacturing and completely scrapping its use ignores some very important details. Palestinian rival governments form a reconciliation committee. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, France 24, The New Arab, The Times of Israel, and Associated Press. Palestinian President Mohammed Abbas and Hamas leader Ismail Haniya met for rare face-to-face -face talks in the coastal Egyptian city of El Alamein on Sunday along with representatives of most Palestinian political factions to form a committee on intra-Palestinian reconciliation. The primary purpose of the committee would be to mend ties between the parallel governments of Hamas in the embargoed Gaza Strip and the Palestinian Authority, or PA, controlled by Abba's nominally secular Fatah Party, which administers certain regions of the West Bank. Notably, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, or PIJ, boycotted Sunday's meeting, saying that the release of PIJ prisoners held by the PA security forces in the West Bank was a condition for sending representatives to El Alamein. Two other minor Palestinian groups also did not attend the meeting. 
During the summit, Hanayeh urged Palestinians to exploit the, quote, window of opportunity provided by the unprecedented internal divisions in Israel over the judicial overhaul, which has caused massive protests throughout the country. Henia also pointed to Israel's, quote, tense international relations with its allies. The rift between Hamas and the PA escalated in 2006 when Hamas won the Palestinians' last legislative elections. This led to a conflict with the Fatah-dominated PA, with intense clashes breaking out between the two groups. After weeks of fighting, Hamas expelled Fatah forces from Gaza, taking control of the Strip. The situation in Israel, the West Bank, and Gaza has deteriorated in the last year as Israel, following a spree of Palestinian attacks last spring, has launched regular raids in the area. Over 150 Palestinians have been killed this year in the West Bank, and Palestinian attacks targeting Israelis have killed at least 26 people. Thanks, Eric. Narrative A on this story comes from the Jerusalem Post. Though talk of unity between Palestinian factions has become increasingly common, it seems unlikely that Hamas will accept Abbas's conditions for joining a unity government, which include recognizing UN resolutions pertaining to the Arab-Israeli conflict and the agreements signed between Israel and what is now the PA. Indeed, Abbas is between a rock and a hard place as he needs to balance the popularity of extremist groups with his own agenda. Unity will likely not be found anytime soon. Al Mayadeen gives us narrative B. As the conflict between the disparate Palestinian resistance factions and Israel reaches a new chapter, the resistance seeks to unify in the face of an internally divided enemy. Though Abbas often acts as a private contractor of the occupation, it would be wise for the PA to acknowledge the popularity and influence of resistance factions like PIJ and improve relations with them. Next up, a judge blocks an Arkansas law targeting librarians. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, Fox News, Washington Post, and CNN. On Saturday, U.S. District Judge Timothy L. Brooks issued a parliamentary injunction to stall Arkansas from enforcing a law that would allow librarians and booksellers to face criminal charges for providing materials deemed harmful to minors. The law, which was scheduled to take effect August 1st, was signed by Republican Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders earlier this year. Act 372 says knowingly providing minors with access to material that would appeal to a purient interest in sex could lead to criminal charges and defines such materials as lacking serious literary, scientific, medical, artistic, or political value and being patently offensive under community standards. The Central Arkansas Library System is among the coalition that filed suit to challenge the law on the grounds that it could have a chilling effect on what books are carried in libraries and bookstores. The Fayetteville and Eureka Springs Carnegie Public Libraries, the American Booksellers Association, and the Association of American Publishers also join the suit as plaintiffs. The suit names all of Arkansas's 28 elected prosecuting attorneys, the County of Crawford, and Crawford's judge, Chris Keith, because they would be tasked with enforcing the law. Scott, thanks for the facts of that story. We've got two opposing viewpoints, and the first one is a Republican narrative coming from Daily Wire. In the face of woke Democrats increasingly attempt to expose children to inappropriate materials in schools, libraries, and bookstores, parents have been activated to step in and protect their kids from filth and other indoctrination. This law, which would build on existing statutes to make sure there would be no loopholes for those who would subject children to sexually explicit and graphic materials, is worth fighting for in the courts. And Mother Jones brings us a Democratic narrative. Republicans are on a censorship binge across the country. 
and blocking this law from taking effect is just a small step in preserving the First Amendment rights of teachers, librarians, and booksellers. This law and others like it are meant to prevent kids from learning about LGBTQ plus issues and the history of race in the United States, but Republicans shouldn't be allowed to foster ignorance behind claims that they're defending decency. X threatens legal action against a nonprofit. And here are the facts as agreed upon by NBC, Verge, Guardian, Forbes, and Daily Mail. On July 20th, X Corp, formerly Twitter, sent a letter to the Nonprofit Center for Countering Digital Hate, or CCDH, an organization that researches digital hate speech and misinformation, accusing the group of making so-called baseless claims that are driving away advertisers. Since Elon Musk's takeover last year, the CCDH has published work claiming hate speech on the social media platform has risen. In its most recent report, it claimed that X fails to take action against 99% of hate speech posted by X Blue subscribers. In the letter, X accused the CCDH of making a, quote, series of troubling and baseless claims that appear calculated to harm Twitter generally and its digital advertising business specifically. The letter also threatened the CCDH with legal action, stating that X is considering whether the claims made are actionable under the Lanham Act, U.S. legislation governing trademark law. The letter also claimed X has, quote, reason to believe the report was funded by groups with an ulterior agenda against the company, like government entities and other corporations. CCDH CEO Imran Ahmed refuted this, saying that his organization doesn't accept any funding from tech companies, governments, or their affiliates. This comes as Musk aims to rebrand the platform which he purchased for $44 billion in October. Advertising revenue has declined roughly 50%, and X's recent legal letter cited a Times article saying that advertisers had left the platform after Musk's purchase and content policy changes led to a rise in hateful, violent, and inaccurate posts. Left narrative spin on this story comes from Mashable. While Musk may claim to be a free speech absolutist who has advocated for far-right actors and conspiracy theorists to be able to use his platform, he has had a dodgy record of silencing those critical of him. This is just one more example of Musk using threats of legal action to silence valid criticisms against him and his companies. Instead of attacking the CCDH, Musk should attack the disturbing hate speech on his platform. We counter that with a right narrative coming from Breitbart. The report claiming supposed hate speech on X by Twitter Blue subscribers is nothing but a series of inflammatory, misleading, and unsupported claims. The article claiming that Twitter fails to act on 99% of Twitter Blue accounts tweeting hate failed to explain its methodology for its selection or testing of tweets and did not explain why the 100 tweets selected were a quality representation of the platform's content moderation policies. These false and misleading claims are unacceptable and deserve legal action. Scientists induce a virgin birth in fruit flies. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the journal Nature, Guardian, Washington Post, and Al Jazeera. In a pioneering experiment, a University of Cambridge research team used genetic engineering techniques to trigger asexual reproduction in a species that normally reproduce sexually. This feat, known as parthenogenesis, was successfully induced in fruit flies. The researchers mapped the genome of a fruit fly capable of parthenogenesis the Drosophila mercatorum, and identified a corresponding gene present in the Drosophila melanogaster fruit fly. Activating the appropriate gene gave that species the ability to carry an embryo without sperm to fertilize their eggs. These so-called virgin births have been observed in snakes, lizards, crocodiles, and birds, 
with this study being the first to identify the genetic basis for parthenogenesis. After examining 220,000 fruit flies over six years, it was determined that the genetically modified D. melanogaster flies had developed parthenogenesis. If the flies in the experiment had access to males, they would reproduce sexually. In isolation, however, around 1-2% of the female fruit flies would have a virgin birth around the halfway point of their life, 40 days, with the offspring always being female. The fruit flies born from parthenogenesis were able to reproduce either sexually or asexually. Mammals such as humans are incapable of parthenogenesis under normal circumstances as they require the paternal and maternal genomes to reproduce. Study co-author Alexis Sperling noted the implications this study will have on agriculture, as many agricultural pests are parthenogenic. After a pesticide used in the UK disrupted the reproductive system of a species of male moths, they became a greater pest after developing parthenogenesis, the author stated. Thank you, Scott. Narrative A comes from The Scientist magazine. Mammalian parthenogenesis is an ethical minefield and, concerningly, is being intensely pursued. As we get closer to understanding the basis for this reproductive ability, we get closer to potentially extending this technology to humans. Researchers have focused little on how these breakthroughs will be applied to real problems humans face, undertaking this research to prove it's possible. We need to seriously consider the bioethical ramifications of this process when applied to humans before we move further. And finally, a narrative B from The Economist. This tantalizing study has opened a window into a whole new model of reproduction, one that could have ramifications throughout the animal kingdom. Parthenogenesis is more widespread than previously thought, and finally, uncovering a genetic basis could create a new frontier in reproduction. Endangered species could replenish their species after developing asexual reproduction, and we could understand the effects reproductive disruption has on a species. The rewards of studying parthenogenesis could be beyond our wildest dreams. We have our final nerd narrative of today's podcast coming from Metaculous Prediction Community. They say there's a 50% chance that the first cloned human will be born by October of the year 2037. I don't know if you've heard this, but the latest buzz uh, in the music world is Madonna is going back to songwriting. Yeah, I'm more of a Vogue guy. <laughs> you know, that that's, you know, I'd be I'd be more uh, impressed if she went back to that kind of stuff. Yeah, but yeah. yeah. What is it? Uh, art this, imitates life. Life imitates art. You know, exactly. so here we are. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, August 1st, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.